Hello, and welcome to a new episode of Infinite Games, where each week we sit down with a founder, operator, or investor working at the edge of what's next. I'm Daniel Scrivener, and on the show today, I sit down with crypto legend Joey Krug. Joey is a co-founder of Augur, which is a global no-limit betting platform for anything. He's also a co-founder of Eco, which has raised more than $86 million from A16Z, Lightspeed, and El Catterton, all to build a new type of bank built entirely on crypto rails. And most importantly, at least to this conversation, he's the co-CIO of Pantera Capital, which was founded by Dan Moorhead in 2013 and became the first institutional investment manager in the crypto space. To date, Pantera has amassed over $6 billion in capital, alongside absolutely eye-popping returns. Pantera invests both in new crypto DeFi and Web3 protocols and projects, and they also manage a liquid, more mature crypto portfolio. So they live in a very interesting position within the space. As the co-founder of multiple high-profile projects, as well as the co-CIO of over $6 billion in assets, Joey sits in an incredibly unique position. So I want to get his thoughts on all things crypto, DeFi, and Web3. And in this episode, we go deep. We cover a ton, including the biggest lessons Joey's learned as an investor, including what he's learned investing alongside Dan Moorhead, who used to work at the, as the head of macro trading at Tiger Global alongside Julian Robertson. We talk about how Joey thinks about risks, how he defines it, and how that shapes his investment approach. We talk about what he learned co-founding Augur and Eco, and how those experiences shape the way he invests and how he works with portfolio companies. And we also talk about the projects that Joey is most excited about right now, from different forms of decentralized insurance to Terra Luna. For more on Pantera, visit PanteraCapital.com. And I also highly recommend subscribing to their monthly newsletter where they share their commentary and thoughts on the broader crypto market. I've been a subscriber for years and I've always really enjoyed reading through it. You can also follow Joey Krug on Twitter at Joey Krug. That's J-O-E-Y-K-R-U-G. For links to everything we discuss in this episode, visit outlieracademy.com slash 74 for the full show notes. And now, please enjoy my conversation with Joey Krug of Pantera Capital. Joey, thank you so much for coming on Outlier Academy. I am thrilled to have you on. This is probably one of the conversations I've looked forward to the most. So thank you so much for making the time and for joining me. Thanks for having me. So I wanted to start, if anyone looks you up and looks at your background, I mean, it looks like you do a lot. You're co-founder of Eco, you're co-founder of Augur, you're co-CIO of Pantera Capital. So just as just an initial question, I was curious what an average day or week looks like for you. Where are you spending your time on? What are you trying to focus on? How are you fitting in research? What does that look like? I'd say most days, like I spend, I mostly have calls from 11 or noon until the evening because I'm actually based in Puerto Rico. So the time is like four hours ahead of the West Coast. So by the time it's noon here, it's 8 a.m. in California. And people in California don't do calls that early anyway. So for the most part, I don't have to do too many morning calls. And so during that time, I'm able to do a lot of like looking at the markets, going through emails, because I get a few hundred emails a day. So it's kind of sifting through all that takes quite a while. And then any like actual like strategic stuff that I'm trying to work on on my to-do list, I tend to do then. And then also in the evenings as well. And then during the day, I'm mostly on calls. And then calls are kind of like with, I'd say like two or three groups. Like one is potential LPs or existing LPs in our fund at Pantera. Two is companies that we're looking at investing. And the other is companies that we're already invested in, just regular catch-ups or if they need help with something, that kind of thing. And then I'm on a few like various sinks as well. Like the eco-currency is something that I'm not supposed to talk too much about. But basically, that is something that I spend some time on that as well, you know, mostly just a couple of days a week. There's like a sync kind of catch up call on that. And then 
the rest is I spend a lot of time reading, whether it's reading regular news to try to figure out like the macro environment, whether it's stuff within crypto, because there's always new things happening in crypto all the time. And then like, I guess the last part of what I do is like, you have a lot of messages. Every time I go to sleep and wake up, I have a zillion notifications on my phone. They're like Signal, Telegram, Slack, or email. And you kind of have to respond to those basically every day. Otherwise, if you took like a few days off, it would be almost impossible to catch up. So that's the other piece as well. Lots of notifications. Yeah, all the discords and telegrams and everything that I imagine you're in. Well, that sounds about like what I thought it was. So you do a lot every single day in terms of purging emails and messages, as well as then trying to spend focus time. So we're going to talk about a lot during the course of this interview, but I wanted to start with, I haven't heard you talk a lot about when you first became interested in crypto. And I want to talk in a second about Pantera, and then we'll talk about the other projects that you're working on and you helped co-found. But I just want to ask the question, I know you worked on Augur initially, was that your first dive into crypto? If not, what was that? And what was it that hooked you in or made you interested and made you feel like this was an area worth exploring? Yeah, I mean, I'd say the very first thing was like mining Bitcoin in 2011. I came across it on this post on a forum called overclock.net. And it was about how you can earn free money with your graphics card. And that seemed really interesting to me. I was in high school at the time. One, I'd never really seen use cases for GPUs outside of gaming. I was too ignorant to know about what people were doing with GPUs and machine learning back then. And even then, it was still pretty primordial anyways. People weren't, as far as I know, running these massive neural net setups on GPUs anyway. So pretty much all you do is gaming. And I thought it was interesting that someone had created this thing where like, you could run a program on your graphics card and use it for something productive to earn money. And then started reading about what Bitcoin actually was and then thought it was really interesting. I've always kind of been one of those people who thinks that governments will tend to print money or spend as long as they can. So I've always kind of been like interested in things like Bitcoin. So that's how I got started. And then I'd say in 2014 is when I came across Ethereum. I thought that was actually much more impactful than Bitcoin, which is something that a lot of people may hate, but it's much more impactful because it actually lets you do stuff. It lets you program money and that's really powerful. That's how I ended up getting into Augur and that kind of stuff is 2014. Did you also find out about Ethereum on a forum? This is about the very early innings, <laughs> both of those. Well, actually I first saw Ethereum before I dropped out, I was going to Pomona in, in Southern California. And I remember one day I was sitting on the couch and I saw this post on the Bitcoin subreddit about Ethereum. This was like late 2013. The first form post effort about Ethereum was on Reddit, I think. But ended up thinking it seemed dumb. Like all the comments were very negative. I had like a few minutes like after class. And so I read a few Reddit comments and I was like, okay, it seems like some random dumb project. And then didn't really come across it again until I'd say like, summer fall 2014 and in the summer fall 2014 i was working on like this point of sale thing where you could pay with bitcoin in stores realized that was a really way too early and also a dumb idea for a lot of reasons and then shelved it and started working on prediction markets kind of in the fall and we were initially building a prediction market on top of bitcoin we basically modified bitcoin code base we're going to make like a bitcoin sidechain and ended up talking to vitalik on skype is kind of the second contact i had with ethereum and he was basically like, the thing you're building, I like it. I think it's cool. Like really Ethereum was designed for this and you should really build it on Ethereum. And I asked some stupid question. Like I was like, but like, what about like Ethereum's monetary policy? Like, and I don't even remember what he said, but it was some like, we're not trying to be like the next goal. We're trying to create a platform for people to run applications. And I thought out a bit more. I was like, okay, well, that's actually what I need. And we ended up building it on Ethereum and never looked back. But I'd say ETH is one of those ideas. I'm like, Bitcoin, I came across it, thought it was cool, and like immediately bought in. ETH was like, I kind of resisted it at first and then didn't realize how cool it was until I like actually needed it. 
it's just fascinating because if you go back in time today, there are all sorts of incredible stats in terms of on-chain usage for Ethereum from everything to just the number of transactions that are processed, the number of money that's locked up. You can look at NFTs that are on-chain. So you see a lot of real-world usage today. You didn't used to see that. So was that a part of your initial hesitation was just no one else was building on it and you just didn't believe that maybe that was going to happen? Yeah, I mean, there weren't that many people building on it. That's true. I mean, like there was us, and I think after us, there was some project that was literally just a forum post. Some guy wrote a post and said, I'm going to create this thing called e dollar E-Dollar became MakerDAO, by the way. That was the name before it became Maker. So yeah, there weren't that many people building on it. It also wasn't live. It wasn't something you could actually use in production. It was this thing where you could run a test net. It sounds crazy now, like looking back on it. Like we were building on Ethereum like as the main core features of the blockchain were getting added to it. They weren't even in like alpha or beta. They were in what they called proof of concept stage. I think we started when they were in proof of concept four or five, something like that. Like when we started building support for like strings of text, you wanted to have like the title of a market who's going to win the presidential election you couldn't do that by default you'd have to like encode the words into numbers which would kind of be a pain and a bit annoying and so i asked vitalik to add support for strings and he did i guess what i'd say is like it was just so like early that it was tough to like know that it was going to be what it became like many early things. <laughs> look, they don't look like serious things that you should take seriously just yet. I want to talk about Pantera and then we'll go and explore some of these other projects. But part of the reason I want to talk about Pantera is even hearing some of this early background, it's fascinating to then jump forward in time and think that in 2017, you joined Dan Moorhead, who used to be head of trading for Tiger Global, who founded Pantera Capital back in 2003. And I'm not sure at what point he started focusing on crypto, but you end up joining as co-CIO in 2017. And Pantera is this first institutional money manager. You guys now manage over $5 billion in crypto assets today, which is just incredible. And it's been fascinating because I've, I think, received Pantera's newsletter for at least three years, four years. And it's just been such a cool window into what you're looking at and reading Dan's commentary on the markets. So I want to just ask the question to start, how did you and Dan first connect and what was the pitch or what was interesting to you about joining Pantera and focusing on investing? Yeah. Well, so we first met actually at a party in 2014. It wasn't really a party. I mean, it was like a tech meetup thing for this company. Blockstream was launching. They're a company that was building like a ton of interesting stuff on Bitcoin. They had a bunch of the core devs work there and they were launching some product. I forget what it was. And uh, they had a launch event for it. And it was like at this house, like in the middle of nowhere, like you had to drive like an hour out of San Francisco and up these steep hills and really, really bizarre. But we met there, talked a little bit about very briefly, I think like we just like shook hands and maybe introduced each other and then didn't really meet again until I would say early 2017. And that's because Paul, the third partner at Pantera reached out and I had been doing a bunch of deals at the time. There were two that I had syndicated one was Numerai, and then which is like the Numerair token, and then the other was Zero X, the first decentralized exchange. And through those, ended up meeting Paul, talking to him and Dan for the course of like three or four months. Their pitch was like, "We're going to launch these new hedge funds, and the space is getting really complicated." And Dan was like, I "Have a finance background." Paul had like this great networking background and knows everyone in venture, and they're looking to bring someone on who is technical and had an operating background building stuff in the space. And when I was looking at one, I, I wasn't ready to make the shift to investing the first time they reached out. I had been doing a lot of it because it was fun. And so it's not like I was talking to a bunch of other firms at the time. But then like the more I started talking to them, kind of the more I started thinking about if I did do investing, what kind of firm would I want to join? And the other firms in the space, some of them were all tech guys. Some of them were all like finance guys. 
weren't really any firms that would have had three partners who had three kind of complementary backgrounds, I would say. And then also Pantera just being around the longest and it's not a fly-by-night shop. I remember in 2017, there were a million new firms that got started. All those kind of reasons were basically why I ended up joining. And what made you interested in investing in the first place? I imagine as someone that had built and co-founded a protocol before, and you had been participating in the space for many, many years at that point, what interested you about investing? Was it just exposure to new ideas? Was it helping teams? There's not many people that are both building and investing, so I think that's unique about your background. But also just, I think, how good Pantera has been in terms of making investment decisions. I'm curious, what was the spark for you personally? For me, I'd say like, I think investing is really fun. And it's fun for a couple of reasons. One is that you get to talk to a wide range of people who are building a wide range of things that are all very, very interesting. And they're basically dedicating their lives to it. Depending on the founder, you're working 80 to 100 plus hour weeks. And it's kind of all you think about. And I think on the investing side, founders come to you with like problems that they want advice or thoughts on or things that they need help with, whether it's like closing a candidate or they have like some legal problem that they want info on, or they have some tech problem where they want advice on like, here's a solution we came up with, curious what your thoughts are kind of thing. And so I think that's really fun and it's rewarding to kind of help out with those things. And then two, I think on the other side, investing itself is just like a fun activity to me. You kind of have to find like something out about the world that you know is true before other people figure it out. Because if other people have already figured it out, you'll probably make a solid return. It's kind of like the if you buy the S&P 500, like you're going to make an okay return. If you're trying to make three times that or more a year, you have to find something else about the world that no one else knows yet. And that's just super fun, I think. Yeah, I think it's fascinating. And I think it definitely expands your mind because you get an overlay of everything that's going on. Not that you see every single deal, but I think that you just have a very different perspective on what's out there, what people are building, what issues they're running up against, what people are thinking about. I think it's one of the most interesting perspectives on the world. So I want to ask one more question and then we'll move on and talk about something else. One of the things I was curious about is, so for you, you got your initial exposure in 2011, 2014 to both Bitcoin initially and then Ethereum. You've been in the space now for a decade plus, and it's been fascinating for me. I first made my first Bitcoin purchase, I think in 2015, much later after you did. And so for me, I've seen market cycles just over in that period, in the 2017 period. So one of the things that I wanted to ask you about is, was there a moment emotionally after learning about these technologies really early on when you finally felt like we were at an inflection point? Because I would say clearly, yes, if you look at on-chain usage, remember one stat I saw recently recently was there something like, I think, 10 million active users of nodes on the Ethereum network, which is still very, very small compared to the size of something like Amazon or the size of other I don't know, benchmarks that you would use. So you could say that we haven't hit that inflection point. That's still coming. But I would say we've definitely hit a clear inflection point in terms of crypto generally. Was there a moment for you where you felt like, okay, this is it. I've been following this for a while. This is finally something I think is really big. And what was that? Yeah, I think there's like the moments you have early on where you realize that it's like real. Like I remember in 2011, so I mined my first Bitcoin, right? But I also bought some, I think it was in June that year. The price was somewhere between like 5 and $20, I forget. But it was basically the day when within a couple hours after I bought them, Mt. Gox got hacked the first time. Not the big hack where all the money got stolen, but they got hacked once and somebody like stole a bunch of money on the exchange. And I think they later reversed the trade so people didn't really lose money. But the price went down to like a penny. And 
I remember thinking, like, well, like an asset that goes down to a penny, because that was the only real exchange at the time, was Mt. Gox. And like an asset that goes down to a penny and that masses back seems pretty like resilient. But then I think the next moment was probably when Ethereum came out and when Ethereum launched. I just thought that was very cool. Thought it was going to actually like just be super transformative for finance, but didn't have like proof that, you know, that was just a belief. If you're operating based on belief, based on evidence you have that leads you to believe that that belief is rational, but there's no hard data that shows you should be as confident as you are, right? And then I think the next time when I realized like that it was actually like real and actually happening, it wasn't just like a belief thing anymore. There was one day a couple of years ago when there was some trade I needed to do and it was one or 2 a.m. and it was on a weekend, so banks were closed. I didn't want to wait until the week and I ended up, you know, selling crypto on a DEX, then sending that money to basically converting that to USDC and then sending USDC to an OTC desk and then the OTC desk sending me back the other asset that I wanted to buy. And when I did all that, like two in the morning with like an OTC desk based in like Singapore or Hong Kong or wherever, that would not be possible with the traditional banking system. So that's kind of like the first moment where I realized like it's actually like adding value in a way that's incontrovertible. Like it's not just a belief. It's not just me betting on something like it's actually real and it's very concrete. So that would be, I think, the moment. Yeah, that one's an interesting one as well, too, because it gets to, I think, part of, for many people, how crypto is very different is just it literally trades 24-7, 365 days a year. And if you have any exposure to the traditional markets, traditional banks, you know that that's not the typical schedule. I want to talk a little bit about risk, because I think someone that's been in the space for a long time, you've seen multiple cycles. Also, as co-CIO of Pantera, I'm sure you're talking about risk all the time (laughs) or about potential risks all the time. And this is something that I've thought about. So I do investing in the public markets, but the vast majority of my time is spent in venture capital. And one thing that I've always thought about reflected on is how I think that has just wired my brain very differently because I inherently think very long-term. I can inherently grok big ideas and willing to invest in them when they're very nascent. And volatility doesn't necessarily scare me. I mean, I'm very comfortable with just holding on a position as things kind of move around. I think crypto has also taught me a lot as well, too. And I think I've learned a lot by just surviving and being through multiple of those cycles. What do you feel like you've taken away from being an investor in an incredibly volatile market? Do you think there's any lessons there that you've grasped? One thing I've learned investing in volatile markets is that you tend to have the urge to sell too soon is, I think, one thing. It's turned out lucky sometimes, right? Like, I remember one time, like, I thought ETH is expensive. This is, like, right before the Dow hack in 2016. So I sold almost all my ETH, and then the hack happened, and then it went down a lot, and so I bought back at a lower price. But in the grand scheme of things, say I hadn't been monitoring that trade very closely, or I got greedy or arrogant and was like, it's going to go down more then I could have missed the entire trade if I just never bought back in. And I'm sure there were people who actually did sell at that time and never bought back in and bought Bitcoin or something and massively underperformed at this point. So I think one thing is like, I always have a tendency to sell too soon, especially in a very volatile asset. And I think another lesson is cutting like loser positions and rotating them into winner positions is more important than like trimming winners. Peter Lynch has a good quote on this. He's like, you don't want to cut your flowers and water your weeds. It's very true in the crypto market. If you have something that's down 50%, like it's probably not a value play. If the rest of the market's up, it probably is just a position that sucks. You should cut it, rotate it into stronger stuff. And then I think the last thing I've learned in volatile markets is when you take risk off, you have to be very careful about it and not do it very long. I forget the exact stat on it, but it's something like if you miss the best five days in ETH or something for each year, you miss like 80% of the return. If you held it the remaining 360 days, it's something on the order of that. You know, Don't quote me on it, but it's something like that. And... 
the point is, if you take risk off, you have to be very careful when to put it back on, whether it's because the market fell to the level you were expecting, and so don't get greedy and think it's going to fall much lower, or two, your trade is invalidated and it's gone up, you need to have some level to cut off and jump back in, basically. I want to ask a question about that. You talked about like a lot of those comments are around trading and something that's fascinating, at least from my perspective about Pantera is you guys both do a lot of active trading and you do early stage venture style bets. How does that split work? How much time, energy and effort are you putting into both of those? And maybe both talk about it at the firm level as well, just for yourself personally. As a firm, we have like 75, 25, 75% is probably early stage stuff. And then roughly 25 or so is liquid, ignoring our Bitcoin fund which like, I don't really count because it just buys Bitcoin. And so this rough split of assets, it obviously varies a lot, but I'd say over the last year or so, that's kind of roughly what I'd say. And then I think in terms of people, most of our firm works across the funds. I'd say I'm still the main person who works on the liquid one though. Like there's not a lot of people who work on that fund, but I do work across the other funds as well. We do have some people who only work on liquid. Like we have a couple of quants who work on that stuff. And then we have like our trader only focuses on buying and selling positions not too much on the early stage side. And so I'd say the two strategies are interesting. As you mentioned, there's not too many firms that run both. But I think they both inform the other. Like the stuff we've learned on the early stage side that's informed our liquid investing. For instance, we invested a, at the time was a small position, but is now a fairly large position in Terra Luna because we passed on their initial seed round on the early stage side. But we liked them. We liked what they were building, thought it was cool. We just thought it was expensive. And then later at one point, I think it was like mid, early to mid 2020, their token was live. It was trading for a price that was fairly close to their seed round, but they had infinitely more traction, right? Because they had nothing live when, when they raised the seed and they were basically a payments network. They do much more now. Back then they were a payments network that had billions flowing through it a year. And if it were a traditional Silicon Valley startup, it would have been a valuation that was many multiples of what we were able to buy it on in the public markets. If you were just focused on public markets and never saw them early stage, you may not know the team. You're just looking at the ticker and trying to gather information online. Like, so I think there's benefits of having both. Just another question on that, because I'm sure most people listening will be familiar with a hedge fund. Is that active trading style that you have, is that meant to hedge risk? Is that meant to just be a different lucrative return stream? I know you'd mentioned quant, so I imagine there's some sort of quantitative trading you guys do there. I say there's two or three different types of trading we do. One is like just changing the weights of positions. We think something is more worth owning in the fund, better value, that sort of thing. The other is more aggressively managing a position, like if something bad happens to a project, like in the liquid side, we'd want to sell it and reposition. Obviously, you don't do that on the early stage side. That's a very different relationship. On the liquid side, most of the time, the founders don't even know we own the position. And then on the early stage side, obviously, it's like a relationship that lasts basically forever. And so I think that's one big difference. And then I think the other type of risk management we do is kind of more macro risk management. I'd say a handful of times a year when we take risks down in the portfolio because we think that there's a good reason to sell. We did that in March of 2020 during the COVID stuff and then aggressively put this back on because we thought that COVID was actually going to be positive for crypto. And then we did it again, January and February of this year, a little bit in June. And those can be technical analysis driven moves where they can be sentiment and event driven moves. I'd say we're not doing the type of trading where like you get four or five people, sit them at their desk, have them stare at a chart and try to crank out some alpha on the hourly or four hour candles or whatever in the size that we're trading as well. Like it's really tough to do that. We don't do that, but longer time horizons, we definitely do trade around. I want to ask one more question about risk. And this one, uh, just to bring it meta, something I've also thought about 
over the years is just the nature of risk. Because I feel like risk is one of those words that it's short. Everyone generally knows. I think people are like risk equals harm, risk equals potential harm. <laughs> I think as an investor, especially when you're invested early, when you're invested on the public side, talking through some of those different tactical moves that you make, I think you just have a very nuanced take on what risk is. What is your perspective on risk? And do you have a way that you define it or a way that you think about it? The way I think about risk is you have different levels of risk. You have custody risk. You need to make sure your assets are stored securely so they don't get stolen. Like when you do a trade on an exchange, you have the risk that the exchange gets hacked in the middle of the trade. Okay, how do you do the trade? Well, you send a small amount of money to the trade so that not a large chunk gets frozen. So there's things like that. Then there's risk of like the actual portfolio, what you own. A question I get a million times from like potential LPs, it's like, so do you guys short a lot? Because your hedge fund, you know, well, hedge funds don't have to short. And some do. I think that's one question. It's like, I actually think it's fairly risky to short in crypto. I mean, if you're short Bitcoin, yeah, whatever, that's fine. But if you're short like XRP or something, that asset's gone up 30% in some days. And so if you have a big short position, like you can really get wiped pretty hard if you're shorting something like that. So like when we want to short a position, for instance, we would buy put options versus actually going short it most of the time. There's also risk in DeFi stuff. A lot of people like to like yield farm. When you put money into like a liquidity pool, you know, you have the risk that like, well, you think the market's going to go up a lot, you might actually lose more money due to impermanent loss. For those who don't know, like the loss from like the price is basically moving around as your market making, then you get from trading fees as profits. So like if you think the price of ETH is going to go way up, most of the time you probably should not market make 50% ETH, 50% USDC because like you're going to lose due to impermanent loss. That's like another risk we think about. And then I think like the last big category of risk you have is just classic stuff like size, concentration, sector risk, things like that. For instance, we've been very bullish DeFi over the years, but right now our liquid portfolio is a bit under roughly, depending on how you count, but under 40% DeFi. A year ago, it was probably 60 or 70% DeFi. And it's like, why? Well, like right now, I think layer ones are going to outperform over DeFi. And then I think DeFi will come back. But it's just the market sentiment on it is a bit sour right now. I'm kind of rambling, telling you a million different things, but like those are some of the sorts of things that I think about when I start thinking about risk. No, that's fascinating. I mean, I loved your take at the beginning of just thinking in risk in terms of levels and thinking about kind of foundational risk, portfolio risk, obviously risk of execution. I want to ask a question, which I'll try to be as articulate as I can with it. I mean, something that's fascinating to me about crypto, you kind of hit on this, is it is incredibly dynamic in terms of, you know, in venture, if you invest long enough, you start to see, oh, this is a new version of that thing I invested in five years ago, seven years, eight years ago. Because one quote I always love about innovation from Josh Wolf is that it's like waves crashing on a beach and each wave lays the foundation for the next wave to come. Because I think that's actually a very elegant way of thinking about it because they kind of build on top of one another. That's happening in crypto and it's happening faster and it's happening in this dynamic market. So even as you talked about layer one versus layer or two, how much emphasis do you put on on each of those as both are changing around dynamically? Just kind of take this back. One question that I wanted to ask is, I know from doing research, you started off obviously in Bitcoin, you found Ethereum was really interesting. We're at a moment in time today where I think there's a polarizing debate of, is Ethereum still this innovative network you should be building on due mostly to things like high transaction fees, high gas fees, as well as throughput. And then you have projects like Solana that have lower transactions fees, much higher throughput. How do you think about something like that, where on the one hand, it just becomes very difficult? Do you think about owning those in parallel? Do you try to size based off adoption? How do you think about something like that? Yeah, we definitely try to think about things relative to adoption, also relative to like how much upside there is, also relative to how much risk there is. Like If you look at Solana, for instance, you have a large portion of it, which is owned by 
a hedge fund. You have a large portion of it, which is owned by a proprietary trading firm. And you have a large portion, which is owned by the other team and other prior investors. And so then like, if you think about like what happens in a bear market, it's kind of like a game of chicken. And like the first to move gets the spoils, which is selling into the order book as fast as you can with as minimal market impact as you can, yada, yada, yada. And so anyway, like an asset like that, like when the next bear market comes, it's probably going to go down a lot because of the concentration in it. That's kind of the thing that's generally true in the space. It's also a higher beta asset. It's much riskier than something like Bitcoin. And so I think like if you look at Solana in particular, not to pick on them or any interest you want to single out here. I think like if you look at like the value there, like I think there's much more value right now in investing in early stage projects on Solana than actually like holding Solana tokens themselves because it's quite expensive. And I'm sure it can go up more, but it's more just like you're able to buy something for a tiny, tiny fraction of the price that could be like mission critical infrastructure on top of Solana right now in the years to come. And so I think like that's one way we think about it is can we get better value elsewhere? We have all these different strategies. We don't have to always own a diversified book for every single thing. We don't necessarily have to have a huge Solana position if we can at the same time buy a good amount of early stage Solana projects is how I describe it. And then something like ETH, the question for ETH is like, can they get, and I think they will, but the question is like, can they get like a roll-up centric version and working where you kind of have all these scalable layer twos that go back to layer one and it's not like crazy expensive to store data on layer one. And if that gets figured out, then like it'll scale well and be successful. And I think that's like the base case. Like I, I don't think it's a difficult tech problem or anything. It's not trivial, but it's also not rocket science. Yeah. And I get the sense that you're not skeptical on Ethereum's ability to execute, which is interesting, obviously, to go back in time where you started off very skeptical and then you've watched them execute. What is your real-time take on Ethereum and their ability to scale and kind of solve the high transaction problem? Yeah. I mean, I think the way I think about it is like, People will love to hate on like Ethereum's ability to execute or whatever, but I mean, I remember like seeing it there firsthand and yeah, they're pretty good at execution. It's more just about like, what trade-offs do you make while you execute? And I think if you're smaller and nimbler, like you can make more trade-offs or if you're more centralized, you can make more trade-offs and you can make those decisions quicker. Ethereum has a massive community of people to get on board and it's much more important that it get done. It's much harder to like roll back or do a take back or ship a fix very quickly because you also have multiple Ethereum clients and implementations by different groups all around the world. So it makes it more difficult. But I think at the same time, it makes it more resilient. And it also makes it more likely that like ultimate kind of correct set of trade-offs will eventually be chosen. If you think about how like every phone company, like Google, Samsung, all these companies, they ship product really quickly and launch tons of features before the iPhone does. And the iPhone will launch them. It'll launch them two years, sometimes even three years later, Apple will ship. And the Apple one's almost always better. There's a few rare exceptions where there's like some feature Apple ships and it wasn't better. Like that time they shipped maps and it was terrible. But most of the time, like the features they ship are just superior. And it may be the same thing that Samsung shipped two or three years ago, but they take the time to like really get it 100% right. That's how I see Ethereum right now. They're not in this stage where they can rapidly ship product like they could in 2014 when it was super, super nascent. But they're also very smart. And I think the dev teams there that are working on ETH2 and all the kind of scalability stuff around it, in my opinion, the best in the world and will figure it out. Yeah, it's very well said. I want to talk a little bit about Augur because one of the first projects you worked on was Augur. You were co-founder of it. It's an open betting protocol. I think there's a few things that are fascinating about it. But one thing is it's obviously, I think today fits right into DeFi as a trend, as a buzzword that people are using. But you guys founded this way, way, way before DeFi was a term. DeFi was something people were talking about. What inspired you and the team to focus on betting? in that particular problem set? I mean, the way I thought about it was like, well, there weren't like other tokens, right? It's like you couldn't make Compound or Aave like in 2014 or 2015. 
it wouldn't have even made sense at the time. And so we were thinking like, what thing can you make that's like useful, even if nothing else really ends up being built on Ethereum? And also like, what's a fun problem to solve? And so the thing we hit upon was, well, there's an interesting problem called the Oracle problem about how you get real world data into the blockchain. And then also prediction markets are a really cool idea. They were even mentioned in the Ethereum white paper as like one of the ideas that Vitalik thought would be cool to see built on Ethereum. And I used to do a lot of horse betting basically when I was younger. And so I'd always been into betting as well. And the betting sites, like sometimes they would like freeze your funds or kick you off. It didn't really happen much in horse racing because the financial incentives are different, but in other sports, it happens all the time. And so we saw these problems, thought it would be fun to solve them. And then also I think prediction markets are also just really interesting. They provide information about the real world. What are the odds that this event's going to happen? The thing we always used to say is like, imagine like you could have like an app on your phone that would tell you the probabilities of various real world events happening, kind of like the weather, but for everything else, it's like weather's boring. I don't really care that much if it's going to rain tomorrow, but like knowing whether Congress passes the current stimulus bill they're trying to pass, like that's actually interesting info to me. It's also actionable info to me as an investor. So stuff like that we thought would be cool. And that's kind of why we ended up starting it. Yeah. On that point, I mean, the way you kind of describe that there's potentially in the future, this is app on your phone where you have these predicted markets that you can look at in real time. That obviously hasn't happened yet. So I think one thing I wanted to ask is what is your real time updated view on where you think prediction markets are headed and what you think those will look like and pick a time horizon. Maybe that's one year, two years, three years, four years, five years. What do you think that that future looks like or hope that it looks like? (laughs) So I think a couple of things we've learned, right? Like one is that people really only like to bet on sports and politics. And within politics, they really only care about like races, like the congressional race, the presidential race. And they don't really care about whether a certain bill passes or not. And then people like to bet on like really degenerate stuff. Like if you look at like Predict It, actually, they removed them. But a couple of years ago during the election, they had these markets that were like, how many times will Trump tweet today over or under? It's not like useful, like nobody really cares. So basically people have to bet on sports, random degenerate stuff and political events. People don't seem to really like to bet on the stuff that's like actually useful, like real world information. It's just like not like a cultural thing that people want to do. So that's like why you don't have that app on your phone. It's because like there's not enough people who want to bet on that stuff to make it happen. I think the other thing is that there's a lot of UI UX hurdles to it. And what I mean by that is if you're in crypto, you're betting on crypto. You're going to buy various crypto tokens because you think they're going to go up a lot. You're not going to invest 50 cents into a prediction market or $500 or $5,000 because you think you can make a dollar or $5 or $5,000 profit. And so that's the other issue is that in crypto, there's better alternatives if you want to make money. And then for people outside of crypto who are actually interested in this stuff, the barrier is still too high for them to use it. As you mentioned, there's only, I don't know what the number is, 10 million or whatever users of Ethereum. Most of those probably aren't monthly actives. That number is probably much smaller. Those people who do like to bet on stuff are buying other crypto tokens because there's more upside. And then the people outside in the external world just can't figure out how to use it. So I think over five to 10 years, that usability problem goes away. Everyone will have easy access to crypto. There probably will be wildly popular like sports betting and political betting markets on blockchains. I don't know if there ever will be prediction markets that are like widely spread that have various interesting things on them. I could see it happening as betting becomes more accepted in the culture. If you look at the US right now, they're legalizing sports betting in almost every state over the next few years. And so if more people start betting, then it can maybe happen. Your friend bets on sports and you're like not a sports guy and you're kind of like, eh, this is pretty boring, but you make an account anyways. And then all of a sudden you see some markets on things that are not sports, but are actually interesting to you. Like I could see it trickling in, but it's probably going to take five to 10 years if it even happens. I know on Eco, you're not supposed to talk about it. Can I ask you a general status question, which is where are you guys at in the project and kind of what are you focused on now? 
Yeah. So I'd say on Eco, project-wise, what we're doing is, you know, the whole plan with Eco is take the approach of get a bunch of users, make sure the product market fit is very strong, and then you can add crypto to it to like supercharge it. Because crypto is kind of like fuel to a fire. And if you take something that has good product market fit and you add crypto to it, it becomes even better if assuming that like it makes sense and stuff. But if you just start with the crypto piece, like you don't really know whether you have true product market fit or not, and it's just kind of a mess. And so I would say basically that's the approach we're taking. And then when it comes to like where we're at right now, I'd say the main thing is Eagle's looking to hire Solidity engineers. And you can guess where that may be going, but basically looking to hire Solidity engineers, what we're trying to build, because I didn't actually answer that for anyone who doesn't know what Eagle's trying to build, is think of like a banking experience, but like 100x better in every dimension. So when we launched, we had the ability to basically earn money, like savings, wallet basically. And then we added the ability to spend where you get 5% cash back at like the merchants that are most popular for millennials, like Amazon, Uber, Uber Eats, that kind of stuff. And then we're currently piloting bill pay so you can start paying your bills with Eco. And slowly but surely, we'll eventually have every feature of a traditional bank account, but we're not actually a bank. And I think like the analogy there is you think about Uber, they're the best taxi company that doesn't actually own any cars and they're not actually a taxi company. Like Airbnb, it's like widest selection of hotels, but it's not actually a hotel. We want to be basically way, way better banking experience, but it's not actually a bank and it doesn't have any of the negative aspects of the banking business model. The very last thing I'd say is your bank, basically, you give them money. They give you anywhere from five to the higher end, 50 basis points, and then they turn around and lend it out for 3%. We'd like that basically to go back to like our community of users and create a more like virtuous system that ecosystem that doesn't have this massive rent-seeking component in the middle. That's basically the pitch. For anyone that's interested, we'll link to this in the show notes as well, too. But for anyone that's interested in learning more about Augur, you can go to augur.net and you can also learn more about Eco at eco.com. And I want to ask one more question about Eco because one thing that I felt really strongly for a long time, and it's shaped by almost every experience I've had in crypto, is that by and large, it still just isn't easy. I think the bar for design execution is a lot lower than it is in the traditional venture capital space, or at least its UIs tend to look much more technical and complicated and I think are harder for people to understand. One thing that I've always been impressed by Eco is it feels like it could become one of the first consumer brands in crypto, meaning I think you guys do a great job of marketing. I think the branding's really interesting. The product looks extremely simple, extremely well-designed. Was that something that you guys were focused on from day one? What thoughts do you have about the need to just create, I think, really compelling experiences for everyday consumers in crypto? It's something I think is super, super important story on this is like, I have an interactive brokers account and I have a Robinhood account. I know I get worse execution on Robinhood and I'm not buying in such large size that it matters. So when I buy stocks, I use Robinhood. I like the UI better. And I know that interactive brokers technically, theoretically a better product. And I have an account there. It's not like it's a ton of work to use it. And I just don't care. I still use Robinhood. I think UI UX is super powerful. And I'm somebody who would consider myself a fairly rational person. And even I'm not able to really overcome like that statement, which is inherently somewhat irrational. And so I think it matters a lot and something we think is really important. I mean, when the app first shipped, the design was much worse. We've kind of improved it over time. We actually have a bunch of stuff that's in the works right now to like improve it much further and really take it to the next level. But yeah, I think it's super important and critical for the space to go from however many million actually active users there are now to like the next 100x. Yeah, I think real world deep penetration is super important. I want to just close by asking a few closing questions. And so I'm going to pop around a little bit. But one of the questions I had to ask is, 
For anyone that's familiar with Dan Moorhead, I think people would think that you're extremely lucky to be working alongside him. Someone that's worked at Tiger Global, someone that's done this at a really high level for a long time. So I'm curious what lessons you've learned and what insights you've picked up from Dan Moorhead. And you can also expand that more generally. And maybe there's just by being exposed to more typical investors, whether that's quants, whether that's traders, what have you picked up from that side of the equation? I say the main thing is probably just when you're investing and you have a position that you think you have conviction in, where you think it's very high odds that you're right, take a big swing at it. Like don't put that position on in a small size or in a size that's not meaningful. Put it on in a firm size. An example I remember is we were doing this trade to basically rotate out of Bitcoin into ETH in one of our funds last year because we thought that Bitcoin was basically getting overvalued and ETH is getting undervalued. And we were talking about like how much we should put in and, and we eventually ended up basically taking our entire Bitcoin position down and put it all into ETH. If Dan hadn't mentioned that. Super aggressive. Yeah, we probably would have been far <laughs> less aggressive. And then I think the other thing too is like timing in terms of like, if you do have conviction in a trade, it's really critical to move on it quickly. And this one, we did that trade quick. Like we discussed like maybe we should do it in a few weeks and we ended up doing it very quickly. And then like since then, I've also just noticed it all the time in markets. You have like an insight to do a trade. The market looks like it has a good setup. And sometimes you might think I need to like grab dinner. I'll be back in a few hours and then I'll text or call our trader and put the trade on. Now I just email him or call him before the dinner or in the middle of dinner because often you have an idea and then the market will just like move in favor of that idea like very quickly within hours or if it's a longer time frame thing even within a couple of days of you having the idea because like someone else has clearly had the same idea too it's a both a good thing and a negative thing it's a negative thing because you could have gotten a better price but it's also a good thing because like if the market's moving in your direction it's probably going to move further in your direction if the reason you wanted to do the trade is actually correct One thing related to that is I know that you use technical analysis in some of your trading and previously you were a skeptic of that. I think I'm someone who's still not in the skeptical camp. I'm just in the camp of people who haven't yet spent enough time (laughs) learning and understanding technical analysis. Was there a moment that changed your mind? And can you share a little bit about how you use that today? I think there were moments that changed my mind when I just like seen it work enough times. I'd say like the technical analysis that I know is like, my thesis on it, the way I describe it is like, if you think about trading, I forget what book I read this in. It might have been Soros or someone else. But basically, like, you don't want to know what the dumbest person in the room is going to do because most people are dumb. If you understand what they're going to do and you just do that, you'll make a lot of money. You either want to be the dumbest person in the room or like understand what the dumbest person in the room is going to do or be the smartest person in the room. But it's really tough to be the smartest person in the room because you start telling yourself all this stuff. You say, well, if I was going to do that and then the market knew that I was going to do that, and then the market does this, and then I do this, then the market's gonna do that, and you psych yourself out. And unless you're literally the smartest person in the world, you're gonna mess that trade up because you'll go too many stacks deep or you're not actually the smartest person. So that's really tough. But I think if you can figure out what the main average kind of like animal spirits person in the market will do and trade according to that, you'll do well, I think. And so then if you think about that and you apply it to technical analysis, basically I'd say like the technical analysis I know is like fairly basic stuff. I see some people draw really, really complicated TA and like nobody in the market's paying attention to that stuff because nobody else understands it. The TA that markets move off of is quite simple, especially in crypto. Equities market, far more efficient. None of this applies. But in crypto, I think simple TA tends to work because a large portion of the market's paying attention to it. I've seen it work enough where I've kind of converted from a huge skeptic of it, thinking it was incredibly stupid to thinking it's something that actually works. And the last thing I'll say on this is I was always a skeptic because like you couldn't quantitatively like prove that it worked. And the reason why you couldn't do that is because it's like on quant models, you're trying to do something on a daily basis or an hourly basis, some fine time frame, and find like small alphas over those. But technical analysis, when you have large alphas, 
It's not like that. There's a handful of really massive TA alphas in a given year. And so you can create a systematic model of that and play it out and it would probably make money, but it's not like you're going to have daily trades. If you try to do it on daily trades, you're going to lose money, which is why like people who get those TA books and they trade every day on it, there must be some people in the world who make money off of it, but very few. That's kind of my thesis on it. Yeah, super interesting. Obviously, you've now been exposed to a lot of other thinkers in investing, whether that's at Pantera, whether that's people you know in the industry. I'm sure that's also given you some self-awareness and some sense of how you uniquely see things a little bit differently and maybe what you're kind of uniquely good at. What do you think of as your investing superpowers? Because there's a couple of places I could see that. I mean, someone who is both a builder historically and an investor, I think that's a superpower in a lot of ways. That's one. I mean, it's also fascinating to think about your background back to horse betting. (laughs) kind of maybe you picked up something there what do you think of as as your superpowers one of them is like being comfortable with risk and figuring out how to price it and react accordingly you need to pay attention to risk you also don't want to get caught up in it so much that you don't do the successful trade or investment that you should be doing so like figuring out that balance i think is something that i would consider that i think i can do decently well i think another thing would be like i think you mentioned being on both sides of the table it's nice because like provides a really good lens for like, is something BS or not? Often, you know, you're talking to somebody and you hadn't been on the other side of the table, you might not know what they're saying is credible. I guess the way I describe it is it provides a very good barometer for whether you are reasonable or not, because you've seen it on both sides and see, so hey, this is reasonable. No, this isn't. Hey, if I give you this term, I'm actually being really, really nice. And so like the one thing that I asked for, you should kind of give it to me because like it's the fair, right thing to do. Knowing that line, I think it's really useful. And if you haven't been on both sides, it's kind of harder to do. Those, I think, would probably be the main things. I guess the other thing is just having seen a bunch of stuff in DeFi. I've wasted so much time on various things that now I know to do a different way or not to do or doing this, do that instead. Or when you're hiring engineers, you need to have like a coding test and you need to like do it in a certain way that tests for exactly what you're looking for without actually explicitly asking for it. Because in real life, you're not always going to sit over the shoulder of the programmer you're talking to and be able to explicitly ask for everything. Random stuff like that, I think it's probably the third thing. It's just like, Having been in a space a long time, you see a lot of stuff and pull your hair out a lot of times. And the lessons from those are these positive things you can take away. No, totally. And those lessons are burned really deep. (laughs) You've processed so much information. Okay, two closing questions. One, I can't not ask, what are you excited about today? And these can be projects, people, anything, but in crypto, DeFi, Web3 broadly, what are things that you're really excited about? I'm excited about decentralized insurance stuff. We're in a company called Risk Harbor that's doing decentralized insurance for DeFi. I think that's going to be big. I think it's going to eventually be big even outside of DeFi. Insurance is one of those things. It's just a pain to get. It's like getting a mortgage. It's a huge hassle. Although there's startups that are working on the mortgage problem. But on the insurance side, it's more nascent. I think the second thing would probably be, there's a project called Akala, which is building like a EVM Solidity compatible thing on top of Polkadot. And they're kind of the flagship project on Polkadot. And I think if they succeed and build it and it's fast and it works well, I think there'll be a lot of developers that start to build on Polkadot. So I think that would be very interesting. And then the last thing I'm excited about, I haven't actually read it yet. I very briefly skimmed it. But Vitalik's proposal for scaling ETH with making it really easy for layer twos to store data on ETH 2.0. Because if they can do that, the scalability problem can be addressed, I think, pretty aggressively. And also without it taking a ton of time. It's a simpler design. I like stuff that's simple. 
That's fascinating. Those are great examples. And we'll list those out. We'll link those in the show notes as well, too. I want to ask one final question, which is this one I've always struggled with personally. So part of this is just super selfishly. I'm curious to hear your answer. And that is, so we talked about, obviously, just in Ethereum, to focus on that for a second, 10 million active users or 10 million users on the network, which is still very small in the broad scheme of things. So then the next question becomes, what does it take to bring more and more people, bring the next 100 million to ETH and to crypto more broadly? And there, I think it really is, where do you point somebody who's new, who's interested, who wants to learn about the space, that's an easy on-ramp for them. And I've never had a great answer to that. And my answer is just, you have to go down the rabbit hole, follow your interests, because there's so many projects, there's so many interesting things. That's been my approach, which feels very lazy. When people ask you, or you're talking with somebody that is interested in crypto, but hasn't yet made the leap there, any advice for them, any places you would point them to, whether those are resources, websites, forums, anything? It's kind of always case by case. It's such a specific thing, right? If someone's just like interested in high level knowledge, like, I don't know if we still do it. At one point at the end of our investor letter, we had a list of like 40 links and it's like, just dive in, spend a weekend as much as you can, just read through all this stuff. And then I think like another thing I'll, I'll do is somebody has less time or if they're a bit skeptical. I did write a blog post a couple of years ago. It's called a crypto thesis, which is like a really generic title. It walks through like why this stuff is cool, particularly from like a DeFi perspective, why it is valuable for the world. In that piece at the top, it says like, you know, this assumes you've read the Bitcoin and Ethereum white papers. If not, you should read them. Otherwise, it's not going to make much sense. Those are always a great place to start too, like the Bitcoin white paper and the Ethereum white paper. The Bitcoin white paper is one of those things you read it the very first time, especially if you're not technical. You're kind of like, what did I just read? It doesn't make much sense. And then the Ethereum white paper is much more plain English, although it still has a lot of buzzwords in it. It's kind of the canonical literature in the space. It's like if somebody asks you like about some religious work and the religious work happened to be really short. You can send them a link to like a 400 page analysis of it. But if the thing that you're talking about is like 10 pages, you could also just be like, here's like the 10 page thing. And then come back to me with the million questions you have. And I'll try to point you in the right direction next. Those are great places to start. And I remember definitely seeing those 40 links. So I will try to go then dig those up. So maybe they're somewhere in my inbox and I can point people in that direction. So we'll link to this in the show notes. You can find that at outlieracademy.com slash Krug. Where can people follow you? Where can people find you on the internet? I'm on Twitter. Haven't been as active recently, mostly just because it's hard for me not to engage. So if I tweet something and then a million people argue against it, I love to engage. And then I started getting distracted by that. So I'm mostly just lurk on Twitter now. But if you DM me, I'm happy to talk to people and DMs about anything. I'm just at Joey Krug, just my name on Twitter. And then if you have like a company you're working on or something and, and you want to send me info on it, yeah, I'm just Joey at PenteraCapital.com. Thank you so much for the time, Joey. This has been an incredible conversation. I think people will take away a lot from what we've covered, whether that's about investing in crypto broadly, about where the space is headed, about prediction markets. This has been fascinating. So thank you for the time. Thank you so much for listening. For the full show notes and transcript for this episode, visit outlieracademy.com slash 74. At outlieracademy.com, you can also find more incredible interviews with the founders of Superhuman, Levels, Rally, Common Stock, and Primal Kitchen, as well as interviews with best-selling authors and some of the world's smartest investors. And if you haven't yet, check us out on YouTube. You can find us there at youtube.com slash outlieracademy, where we're posting all of our full-length interviews as well as our favorite clips from every single episode. From our entire team at Outlier Academy, we hope you enjoyed the show. We hope to see you right here next week on Infinite Games.